0: You just hit the red button, and the whole world explodes. I just
1: activate the ears of 6.3 listeners. Oh, we're there now. Nice. 6.3. Moving on up. Uh, like, it's it's been a while since you were uh, here, and we did two kind of back-to-back. Um, And so now I'm just sort of like, how do we usually begin these things? I don't know how we do
0: this. Yeah, we did a couple in-person episodes, and then we had some technical
1: difficulties. <laughs> yes, we have. Yeah, we lost faith in the system. Not that we ever had faith, but uh, we lost it anyway. We've had serious technical difficulties. Well, technical difficulties that made us serious. And then uh, we were going to do this last night. This is a detail everyone wants to know. Anyway, we we're going to do this, and then we couldn't because we were just like, what the hell's going on? Something like a Microsoft update. Tell everyone the details, Ryan. No. Speaking of which, yeah. I, on. Yeah, I'm hot-blooded Harlan Grant. <laughs> you, could, you almost didn't make it through with that one before coughing. I'm running amok like Ryan McKenna. Ooh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm pulling the... Jordan
0: game six tonight, and operating under a fever and Nyquil, and what's
1: oh, gonna be <laughs> real? Fun. You're gonna work up a sweat, as they said about him. He could really work up a sweat. Got a sheen going. You could also do the old. Uh, speaking of Chicago, you could do the. Uh, there was the flu game with Walter Payton, and he like put the team on his back, and like you know, ran his. Was he a uh, like a? High (laughs) jumpers. What sport is this? Walter Payton was a Chicago Bear. American football. Oh, no, we don't talk about them. Oh, that's right. But you talk about the Bulls. (sighs) So, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, we're the Doddlers, and this is the Doddlers Philosophy Podcast.
0: tonight, we're going to talk about a charming little paper. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. I just love that description. Yeah. Yeah. That you found and sent to me, and I just immediately fell for. (laughs) I've never heard of this guy or this thing, but we're going to, I guess, could we call it a sort of philosophy of science episode? I think so. And talk about this uh, paper entitled The Method of Multiple Working Hypotheses. And I don't know if this counts as a subtitle or if this is the entirety of his abstract. With this method, the dangers of parental affection for a favorite theory can be circumvented by T.C. Chamberlain. And I'm like,
1: who the hell is that? (laughs) And I am here to fill in the blanks. But just before I go into who this guy is, I mean, because it's, I mean, I'm not going to like, this isn't like that Carlin guy's history thing. Uh, Yeah, you've heard me, though, talk about multiple working hypotheses, whether you've ever registered it or not. Uh, I'm pretty confident that I've talked about it a lot. And multiple working hypotheses, uh, I, I just, just in general, I've always had some familiarity with. Primarily, Before it was ever given or before I ever heard it, things attached to the title, multiple working hypotheses, you know, like I I would see essentially the thing in effect when I was reading certain papers or whatnot. And I I always found it, I hate to say this, but it was always hyper aesthetically pleasing. And we'll talk about these things a little bit more. But first, we're going to talk about T.C. Chamberlain. I need, like, some violin music and a crackling fire in the background while I give this. Thomas Crowder, also known as T.C. Chamberlain, lived uh, from 1843 to 1928. So I think he was about 85 when he died. That's not too bad. Especially for back then, you know? Yeah, all you have to do is watch a Ken Burns, uh, you know, show and just be like, yeah, no one lived past 43 back then. He is born in Illinois, and but lived, grew up in Wisconsin, which will be kind of, you know, sort of, that's sort of his world, you know, Wisconsin. Uh, it's a lot of people's world, but uh he in particular, for sure. Um, But, you know, he kind of, he did something about it. By the time he, I don't know much about his childhood, but by the time he was, you know, like going to college, getting his, what we would call, you know, bachelor's or, Doing his undergraduate studies He he was studying the classics So clearly, I don't know how you get from the classics To the method of multiple working <laughs> hypotheses um, uh, Until you look it up And so uh, he later just got into uh, graduate studies That included, you know, science courses And, and in particular, uh, geology was one of those uh, Graduate studies courses that he took Uh, Or took a number of them, I suppose. But, you know, he was a professor of what they would call natural sciences and stuff like that, depending on what college you were teaching at. Um, And, you know, he taught at, I think, University of Wisconsin, George Washington University, University of Chicago. So he had, you know, he he moved around throughout the Great Lakes region there in the Midwest. And, um, you know, he, he became quite an expert in the research he did on glacial deposits. These are sediments that are laid down as a result of the dynamics of major ice sheets that were covering North America. Some of the things that are interesting about, say, some of the Great Lakes has to do with the Great Lakes themselves to an extent, but also just that a lot of times some of these Midwestern states... And, you know, the Great Plains states were kind of the the final kind of margin, the the final stop or, you know, the the furthest reach of some of these ice sheets. And so their deposits are in a lot of these states. Things things called, like, for instance, terminal moraines. We'll get into that maybe later. <clears throat> but all those are is just like a bunch of sediment that's literally just been dropping out of the you know, uh, the the ice sheets, but also just kind of being pushed forward. Typically, this kind of stuff is seen in the mountains, but these were really big, and see, it clearly indicated that there were some massive ice sheets out there. And he came up with these sort of names for glacial stages that are still in use today. So, like, the Wisconsinan. <laughs> uh, each area in geology tends to have its own nomenclature. So, uh, North America has its own, and... Europe has its own, that kind of thing. And he also is kind of a a key individual who came up with the notion that there was, you know, more than one kind of uh, glacial period, if you will. And that there were these interglacials and there are these glacial periods where ice really, you know, uh, grew and reached very large extents over North America And uh, this wasn't like brand new information necessarily in the 1800s, but it's definitely he was at the leading edge of researching it. He also came up with some other things, like he's apparently famous for coming up with, um, uh, uh, in conjunction with an astronomer, this planetesimal theory of how the solar system formed. It's, I think, since been somewhat rejected, but the idea of planetesimals remains. And it's kind of the idea that dust kind of, Particles, you know, collide together and then they just keep colliding over time, congregating around the larger clumps. We might say now, due to gravity or whatever, but that like they get to these much larger rocks or whatever. And so, that is one idea about how the solar system formed. And also, he, uh, you know, came up with the Journal of Geology, which is obscure to an extent. Obviously, it's going to be somewhat obscure, maybe, to a gender studies. Person, I suppose, or whatever, an academic in that sense. But, you know, to a geologist, yeah, you've heard, you know, the Journal of Geology. And it was a, it's a, out of the University of Chicago, which has also spawned many other, even more famous or notorious uh, journals, scientific journals like the American Naturalist and things like that. Um, but that's pretty much it. Uh, the only com- comedy I have about the guy is that Crowder looks like Chowder. <laughs> So I could be like, it's like Thomas Chowder Chamberlain. But anyway, that's all I got for you on that. Oh, I'm disappointed. But, you know, they
0: don't pay you enough. (laughs) They don't pay me anything. So you're kind of saying that this guy is not total small time. Like, he's important just within a field that...
1: Yeah. All you gender studies majors. No, I'm joking. You know, uh, one can kind of th- see this guy that he was a somewhat prominent in his own little area at his during his time. Some of his stuff has lasted the test of time, but a lot of it hasn't. So, you know, someone like yourself is like who? He never broke beyond the barrier, right? The border of his own area, really. But, mm. but most don't. I see. Uh, that is correct, sir.
0: So that okay, cool. We got. We know a little bit about the guy, and here I am sitting in the bottom of a scraped-out glacial yep. mm-hmm. depression, right? That once was Lake Agassiz. Yes. So I know all about it already. Yeah. Right. Um, but what is he talking about in this paper?
1: He's talking about multiple working hypotheses. Which? What? Would you, what? <laughs> so he the the one part that i kind of it, it, first off this was this paper itself is a lecture so in some ways you know lectures can be structured differently than papers right and sort of the way that it's been you know taken from the lecture format down into a paper format you know there's a little bit more just you know talky quality to the paper i i've noticed Obviously, it's, it's it's quite informal because he's addressing a crowd, um, uh, probably ranging from you know undergraduates to some of his peers or whatever. So, and what's t- when was this speech given? I think it was or like about? 1890 or 1889, 1890, or, something along that. I I don't remember exactly. Just know, general orientation. Yeah, here. general eight, 1800s for sure. Getting close to the turn of the century there. One of the things I I like the paper how he more or less goes about it is he talks about he first kind of introduces you know his sort of basic framework you know and he talks about various kinds of study you know like there's it it almost has a Thomas Cooneyan quality to it where he's like there's just the regular research where you know people are just sort of like yep that's what that is and you know there's there's you know methods X and and some conclusions and whatever results and some basic understanding about the field, and I'm just going to take it and move the rock one step ahead. You know, like, he talks about it being like that. Um, So it's not very uh, innovative, Um, and I'm sort of half looking for the spot where he talks about these things. Oh, yeah,
2: I've got got a quote for you.
1: Okay, good. Uh, (laughs)
2: Chamberlain writes, There are two fundamental classes of study. The one consists in attempting to follow by close imitation the processes of previous thinkers. The other class is primary or creative study. In it, the effort is to think independently or at least individually in the endeavor to discover new truth. What I was hearing in that is echoes of episode 14 where
0: Nietzsche talked about the scholars versus the artists Mm. and that Chamberlain is what he talks about the the imitators and the primaries.
1: Yeah. And that's kinda like Right. So there there is that. But then he kinda goes in a little bit more and he kind of is trying to at the same time do another kind of Nietzschean thing by sort of attempting to very casually, I thought, sort of outline roughly what this kind of genealogy of methods, intellectual methods would be, you know and so he kind of quickly mentions that you know first we have the ruling theory then we have working hypotheses and then we eventually can get to this multiple working hypotheses and the idea that being intellectuals are making progress as they go along and we'll get into the metaphors and stuff like that later but you're making or he
0: there that's kind of a historicist point right and that's what, what maybe what you were referencing the Kuhn aspect yeah he's yeah looking back and interpreting the history of the development of science as being one of expanding into more pluralism or something
1: like that. yeah something along those lines but also i was thinking about kuhn in terms of you know to an extent you know there's like he, i think kuhn talks about like you know i'm i'm gonna i'm effing this up but like regular science versus like revolutionary science or whatever yeah normal science normal there. science kind of feels like a lot of imitation falls into that. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah, yep. yeah. So that was kind of almost has that feel to it. But uh, anyway, so then he kind of really gets into it a little bit more and he talks about, it seems to me like he's trying to be like, you know, back in the day, you know, like with the Greeks or whatever, you know, and they're just, you know, they're coming up with explanation for things and they're, you know, falling in love with those explanations. And that's what they spout out all the time, you know, and, and then eventually we get to this point where, you know, it's better to have... Uh, you know something a little more provisional and less attachment to it, and somewhere I, I was probably Wikipedia. I was reading that's you know something like the even the phrase working hypothesis is really only something like two hundred plus years old or something like that. You know, so that's kind of a more recent development. And, um, you know, when I read through some of our, you know, some of, you know, scientists, you know, uh, we've been talking about this person just recently, you know, Richard Dawkins, I see he talks about working hypotheses and stuff like that. So it's kind of a more recent thing. But Chamberlain is beginning this idea that we need to even grow beyond that into the multiple working hypotheses. So he kind of outlines to an extent some of the background. After he talks about the framework and then he starts talking about the difference between say something like a ruling theory and a working hypothesis. I really don't know if we can get into it without this metaphor. Cause he really relies on it. And to me, it really is effective in understanding what it is. I think he's trying to say ultimately that there is a strong, as he mentions at the very beginning with whatever you want to call it, an abstractor or something that there's a parental affection that we have towards a favorite theory and his solution is this multiple working hypotheses. So, enough repeating myself. Uh, do you have any um, questions or spin-offs or anything?
0: No, I really liked him on this parental affection metaphor. Yeah. Uh, we'll see if I can pull out apt quotes.
2: Quote! It is in this tentative stage that the affections enter with their blinding influence love was long since represented as blind and what is true in the personal realm is measurably true in the intellectual realm intellectual affections or as stimuli and rewards they are nevertheless dangerous factors which menace the integrity of the intellectual process <laughs> The moment one has offered an original explanation for a phenomenon, which seems satisfactory, that moment affection has for his intellectual child springs into existence. And as the explanation grows into a definite theory, his parental affections cluster about his intellectual offspring, and it grows more and more dear to him, so that while he holds it seemingly tentative, it is still lovingly tentative and not impartially tentative. An unconscious pressing of the theory to make it fit the facts and a pressing of the facts to make them fit the theory when these biasing tendencies set in the mind rapidly degenerates into the partiality of paternalism,
1: <laughs> yeah, that's uh get into the psychology of all that later, but uh yeah, that's. That's the idea with the the ruling theory. So, so, yeah, somebody comes up with
0: an idea, and they're kind of, at first, tentative, supposedly, trying it out, doing some investigations. But then it's just a... I don't know. In the language of the Daughterless philosophy, I would want to say that this is just a chimpy factor. Yeah. That it comes with the hardware, that we're the sort of thing that enjoys gets some kind of chemical squirt from being correct and coming up with something. And, oh, this was my idea. Hmm. And pride accompanies it, and then swiftly, perhaps, the fall into this where we make the facts fit the theory and we're not even doing science anymore, right? We're just raising our children.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're just raising our children. Um, but in a way, and I, I want you to get in, if you, I mean, I don't mind doing it, but you should probably, I don't know why you should, but I'm suggesting if you want, you want to get into the, the parent-child metaphor a bit, and just sort of, if there's anything you wanted to say about it, or or is that enough? I, I mean, I was thinking that was, I mean,
0: that was about what I intended to say about it, read his thing about it and say, And point out that he utilized it and then say, I kind of like that. Right. Um, That it's just as us chimps seem to be programmed in some sense or other to love our children, you know, and the standard evolutionary psychological explanations for that include. Otherwise, we would quickly bash these mewling aliens on rocks, right? Because they're very annoying and demanding and they don't give us anything back. And so that we have to develop some kind of emotional attachment in order to invest so much in them. And that's, of yeah. course, your department,
1: <laughs> Papa. Well, <laughs>
0: but and then but he's just saying that we do an analogous thing to these ideas.
1: Right. So uh, there's one quote that I guess I found and and think I want to you know just quickly talk about. But he talks about from you know maybe you had already mentioned this, but from an unduly favored child, it readily becomes master and leads its author whithersoever it will. And this, I love these like you know hitherto or whatever kind of language <laughs> from back in the day. But that to me is the ruling theory. It's kind of like a this is it's an only child. And it's a spoiled brat, you know, and it pitches a fit. And until it gets what it wants, you know, it's going to keep pitching that fit because it works. And the parents like, okay, you know, and in a way that's sort of another way to look at a sort of chimp thing, like the beta alpha quality, you know, you know, who's going to be the alpha in this relationship, the parent or the child, you know, or the 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 pet owner or the pet, you know, that kind of thing what we
0: might call a spoiled child or something, who yeah, spoiled seems friend. to be the one in char- making most of the decisions, though they may not have a right. justificatory framework to back them up and right. be a bit whimsical if they, quote-unquote, become
1: the alpha somehow. Exactly. And then, you know, he likes to talk about Working hypotheses. So are you ready to transition to the working hypotheses a little? Yep. <laughs> yeah. I will say that, okay, it's an only child still, but it has like chores <laughs> and an allowance. You know, there's like limits within reason, you know, that kind of thing. So it doesn't have rule of the roost, but it could if you're not careful. You know, I think he kind of mentions that. It's like a working hypothesis could quickly, you know, degenerate into a ruling theory if you're not careful. Um, and so he right, says. Right. So
0: ruling yeah. theory is the spoiled child. It's the I don't know what cultural artifact we should reference. The one that comes to my mind is that Bugs Bunny character uh, that's like the son of the Sultan or something, and he, the guy who holds his breath all the time until he gets what he wants. You remember that guy?
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: So that's the ruling theory, and then you're saying working hypothesis is maybe uh, a useful good kid. That
1: goes out and gets a part time job and contributes and yeah. You know. <laughs> right. Or just does chores around the house, you know. And is you know, we ask something of the working hypothesis, right? Instead the ruling theory asks, like, Yeah, feed me. I don't like that. I want this, you know, I don't want broccoli, I, you know, I don't want pepperoni pizza or whatever. Whereas the working hypothesis were like, No, you gotta eat your vegetables. And if you're not gonna eat your vegetables, this ain't gonna work, you know, like that kind of thing. And so he says the method of the working hypothesis is a marked improvement upon the method of the ruling theory, but it has its defects, defects which are perhaps best expressed by the ease with which the hypothesis becomes a controlling idea. So it also becomes like the sole focus of the parent, right? So to guard against this, he says the method of multiple working hypotheses is urged. So any kind of questions you want to ask me, Harland? Harland?
0: I that sounded loaded as though I was supposed to have something. What question do you, w so? Oh, am, am I? So I can maybe say. Well, what? What is the? What's multiple working hypotheses then?
1: <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Uh, I think what we can do is just take a step back and say, well, wait a minute. What's a working hypothesis? We haven't defined that one really. Oh God damn it! All right, uh, damn it. So what's even one of them? I kind of liked. Yeah, and that's the whole point, right? That you keyed exactly into this idea. So I'm fine with Wikipedia. I'm not an expert on this kind of stuff, so let's do it, dude. So it's a hypothesis that is provisionally accepted as a basis for further research in the hope that a tenable theory will be produced. I don't know about that, but definitely it's, you know, provisional. You're going to, you know, keep moving. You're not going to... Say, no, no, this is it, and this is it only. And, uh, you know, the hypothesis may ultimately fail. So you're kind of leaving the door open a little bit. You're kind of like, well, it's a working hypothesis. We're going to start with this. We're going to test it. And if it fails, then we have to move on. If we feel like it, we could even say, hey, let's change some of these parameters in this model. And then see what happens. And that will become our new working hypothesis. And we'll test it it fails or succeeds or whatever or maybe something seems like it could it, it succeeded well compared to some other aspect of the model did not what have you a multiple working hypotheses would just be literally a bunch of them and the whole point of having many of them is still embedded in this parent child metaphor that if you have a bunch of kids you know, sharing the resources and the love of the parent, then you can't give too much more to anyone if you're going to be, quote-unquote, fair and a good parent or whatever. You love them all equally, you know, that kind of thing. As Chamberlain
2: writes, the investigator thus becomes the parent of a family of hypotheses, and by his parental relation to all, he is forbidden to fasten his affections unduly upon any one.
1: Mm-hmm yeah so that's where we get this it's just many working hypotheses it's It's not a huge jump. I think it's a bigger jump from ruling theory to working hypotheses yep um literally you know you're changing a mode and and the sort of the dynamic of the relationship between the investigator and the models they use versus just saying well, more <laughs> you know it's just like you know that's to me what multiple is doing before we get too far from this part i
0: also had picked out what i thought was the closest that chamberlain got to defining working hypothesis you can add this to your wiki and then tell me what it you know clarify for the listeners what
2: it means all right so chamberlain quote under the working hypothesis the facts are sought for the purpose of ultimate induction and demonstration. The hypothesis being, but a means for the more ready development of facts and of their relations, and the arrangement and preservation of material for the final induction.
1: I know, the final Does that induction. make any... Yeah,
2: it sounds
0: like a <laughs> Michael Bay movie or something.
1: <laughs> totally. The final induction. <laughs> facts are sought for the purpose... ...of ultimate (laughs) induction and demonstration. Uh, The hypothesis being a means for the more ready development of facts. That sounds to me like the, you know, you're just using it. It's just a tool. It kind of reminds me of the idea that, I don't know, it's pithy or whatever. But the difference between ethology, the study of animal behavior, and psychology, the study of human behavior is that the researcher in e- in the psychology puts the subject in a box and the ethologist puts themselves in a box you know it's kind of yeah. like <clears throat> with a ruling theory it's like you're putting the subject in this framework you know and so does it fit in the framework you know and, and you keep the framework and the framework is the the important part the lab whereas you know the idea of and i don't know if this is a good if this is working or not, but the idea of putting yourself in the box is you're know, you using it like a shovel or some kind of leverage, and you're trying to give yourself a tool upon which to use in the study of whatever it is you're uh, concerned about. So that's sort of where I was thinking about it when he talks about a means for the more ready development of facts and their relations. You're kind of, it's like a, it's sort of you know using it for sure to try and intervene um, but not to completely like molest or or control you know it's it's a uh, it's you know, you're hoping that you glean something after you know you 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 use your hypothesis like some kind of fulcrum you're trying to gain leverage on more information or something like that I don't know if I'm saying that at all well. Um I like the boxes thing. Yeah. It feels like a work yeah, working hypothesis is the ethologist view, which is, you know, you're trying to get yourself you know, use the box as a means upon which you understand what's going on. Do you happen to have at hand
0: an example of uh, you know a scientific an instance where this is going on like show me someone using a working hypothesis in their daily life i mean of a
1: scientist in their experiment or in their lab or whatever well it's it's funny because research today seems much more uh but it seems to me like re- a lot of research seems to be you know exploring this this notion of Multiple working hypotheses. But that said, I think oftentimes, and it's just sort of, I I don't want to get, whatever, I, I get too meta sometimes. The thing that I guess I'm thinking about is I think of it in terms of statistics and methodologies and statistics. And if you think about, if you have a hypothesis, right, you're, you can have a null hypothesis, you know? And so say you have two measurements of height or something like that uh, for men and women. And, you know, your hypothesis is that, I don't know, men are taller or something like that. That's your working hypothesis. So then you would test that against the null, which would just be like, they aren't (laughs) or whatever. Like, and so, that kind of is the, is a general thing. You know, uh, I don't know if that's a solid like media example, but that's sort of the notion is that you're doing just some basic statistics. You have a working hypothesis and maybe in your um, model or your, whatever it is, you have this, this basic statement and it either based on how you test it, either, you know, you either reject it or, don't reject it. I know it's a kind of funny thing. It's, it's th- In statistics, you can't accept your hypothesis. You can only fail to reject it or whatever. And I guess that is sort of the idea of, oh, well, I just keep pushing it and I keep taking it to this situation or this situation, you know, and you keep, you know, it does it fail here? Does it fail there? And it's your working hypothesis. And, uh, you know, the less it fails, the stronger it seems to get, you know, that kind of thing.
0: I th- I guess I might see why you're calling this jumping ahead, because you're going to be saying that the prevalence of null hypotheses in contemporary science is one example of multiple working. To an extent. But, so maybe we should come back to that. I might be driving us off the cliff. Where did you want to go next? We kind of, we did the wiki, we're defining what a working hypothesis is, then what having multiple is, Relating that back to the analogy of the parents of a bunch of kids, and that it's primarily, question mark, a bias reducer <laughs> is that what this, is, this method is about?
1: Yeah, I think it definitely bias reducer is for sure. We can go we can go straight into doing, you know, a discussion about the scientific approaches or we can get into some of the more kind of uh the kind of questions you might have had after reading the paper and then get back to the the more sciency stuff if you want later I don't, it doesn't matter to me
0: lead on dr livingston
1: so one of the things that i think a lot of it's a good method for the diverse range of ideas that people have for explaining a particular problem, whatever it is. Chamberlain himself mentioned it when he talked about, well, like, how did the Great Lakes form? You know, uh, there's some antecedent river uh, hypotheses. And there's uh, the carving of these valleys even deeper by the glaciers hypothesis. And then there's also the you know, the idea that, you know, glaciers also have, um, you know, a, a, a pressing effect upon the land. Technical term is you, Stacey, if I'm remembering correctly, <clears throat> which just has to do with like, <clears throat> if you put a bunch of weight on something, like your the cushion of your couch is going to depress, you know, and when you get off of it, it'll rebound. And so that's the that's the model that is also used when talking about the mass of glaciers and ice sheets that lay on the North American continent. Um, and there's there's some evidentiary stuff to back it up. Um, so he was mentioning, like, that particular example of, like, well, gee, how did the Great Lakes form? But then, you know, you can't fall in love with, well, no, damn it, it was, you know, valleys or you know uh, antecedent rivers that were like canyons or, or something like that or you know oh, it's the carving out of the stuff by the glaciers or or it's just you know it was just the ice was heavier there or something like that and so it's yet to come back fully the rebounding uh speaking of which just as a quick aside the lake agassiz and any of those these were really big lakes back in the sort of as the glaciers melted the ice sheets, probably a better term to use because glaciers are kind of lobe-like coming down off of a mountain and ice sheets are just covering everything. Um, But like, you know, Lake Agassiz, it's not there anymore in part because of the rebounding of the land. And there's some ideas that some of these huge lakes like Lake Agassiz, were like spilling over into each other as the land rebounded back and forth and all these fish populations moved back and forth and they've got some, I think, some genetic studies to show that there's some remnant populations that once belonged to one large population but that have been since isolated by this effect of the rebounding of the land. Anyway, he uses that as a sort of way to talk about how, well, hey, you know, sometimes we get all get into fights about our special ideas or whatever, or even just our working hypotheses that we may on our own be out there testing separately. But we need to bring them all together because these phenomena are much more complicated than, you know, we might be giving them credit for. And so I started to, you know, think about that. And I remembered papers that are, you know, 21st century papers. So they're recent Um, and they make use of statistical methods and other, you know, just general mathematical methods that basically try and do what Chamberlain is talking about in words. You know, they try and do numerically. Um, In particular, there's one called the Akaike um, information criterion. It's derived from information theory there's bayesian information criterion um and uh you know these are particular kinds of methods that attempt to um, on the one hand give credence to the likelihood estimation um that a particular model is you know you know uh, whatever that value is that you get um and at the same time penalize you, if you have a whole bunch, you know, for however many parameters you have in your model, because the idea is that more and more and more parameters you include in your model, the likely <clears throat> chance you'll match the data that you're collecting or the phenomena that you're studying. And so, you know, there's this this idea that, you know, uh, you want to look at a whole bunch of different models and you want to be able to see what they are doing with respect to the same data set, even though they themselves are different. Um, And it's a way to assess it. I felt there was some... I thought I heard some rustling back there uh, where you are, and I'm wondering if you wanted to say something.
0: Ah, the rustling is the shifting of papers as I pull another apt Chamberlain quote. Please. Uh, As you were just stressing in his example of what formed the Great Lakes many questions are going to be probably complicated and have multivariate solutions. We, as chimps, might have a tendency to prefer simplistic solutions. So there's more to this method of multiple working hypotheses than bias reduction. There's also, Chamberlain claims, the virtue of
2: having a greater likelihood of noticing complex explanations. So, quote such complex explanations of phenomena are specially encouraged by the method of multiple hypotheses and constitute one of its chief merits we are so prone to attribute a phenomenon to a single cause that when we find an agency present we are liable to rest satisfied therewith and fail to recognize that it is but one factor and perchance a minor factor in the accomplishment of the total result not only the participation but of the measure and the extent. A special merit of the method is, by its very nature, it promotes thoroughness. The method itself may be designated a habit of parallel or complex thought. The mind appears to become possessed of the power of simultaneous vision from different standpoints. And, I mean, I
0: like it and that makes sense. If you are entering your inquiry with a backpack stocked with a bunch of different tools and technologies that you're going to, on purpose, try out, it seems more likely that you might get a hit with two or three different ones, and then say, oh, I guess maybe there's multiple contributors to the explanation of this phenomena. Whereas if you just had the one kid, and you were... (laughs) stuck with it, you know, then it like it works or it doesn't work, and you're unlikely to find anything more complex. And maybe that's partly what he's getting at with fitting the facts to the theory. If you've only got one thing, but then you have some anomalous facts, you might tend to sweep them under the rug, so to speak. And if you had, instead, multiple hypotheses, it might one of them might catch these facts, and one might catch these other ones, and then you can have a all of the above answer
1: right. And you could then, even then, I think you could then take it further and say, "Well, why this much here versus this much there?" You know like why is it that you know what what can we what can we say is more, is, is is a more significant contributor to the behavior? of this system in this model a and what is the more significant contributor from model b and all that kind of you know. so i'm going to try and do something kind of from memory <laughs> i have reviewed and all that kind of stuff but i don't want to get too messed up but uh i'm going to try and sort of talk about like i guess a modern example of what you just talked about with the idea that you know with the quote you just gave and the little explication afterwards so i love evolution biological evolution in particular i love my critters plants are okay I guess i just don't take care of plants that's the only that's the deal i have with my wife I'm like you i'll do the animals you do the plants um plants take care of themselves not in our house <laughs> anyway uh, <laughs> shed a tear um, many bothins died to get this name. Was, sorry. Uh, <laughs> so we talked about. Um, I don't know how much we've talked about this. So there's this idea out there that is, I guess, controversial. I don't know. It has a history of controversy. That's different than it's than one saying it necessarily is controversial right now. But it's called Punctuated Equilibria. And when it's authors, but you could really say that one of them was the author and the other one was the popularizer. When Niles Eldridge, the primary author or reinventor almost, um, outlined this idea and then later was together with Stephen Jay Gould, you know, made even more... Uh, Uh, ubiquitous and other scientists and people who care about evolution and speciation and things like that became more ubiquitous to them. The idea was that essentially that new taxa, let's just say fossil taxa, new kinds of organisms or whatever you want to call it, species, morphospecies. There's so many things that people say when they appear, For the first time, or whatever, in the rock record, it happens really fast relative to the remainder of the time that they are found or excavated from the rock record. And that time that they are in the rock record, they don't change a whole lot. They turn this stasis. And since the rocks at the time in the early 70s Um, or at least the studies of the rocks hadn't hadn't borne out a lot of the kind of gradual changes that were expected. They then said, well, we don't have that information because it happens too quickly that that one lineage would evolve another lineage out of itself or what have you that, you know, what we can say is we have this stasis and stasis is data. you it was their big thing. And everybody was like, Oh fuck, you know, we actually have to deal with this shit now. We really liked our gradualism and whatnot. And this mustached chubby guy, Stephen J. was harassing us about this crap and saying that the modern synthesis is effectively dead. Anyway, that's another paper we could read sometime. But this created quite a bit of debate and discussion and people had their data and damn it, it's gradual. And another person says, no, it's not. That's totally just stasis so you have all these people and they're like no no it's this it's that you know and eventually (laughs) after like 30 plus plus fucking years a particular paleontologist and maybe this has been done in other ways but i hadn't seen it done like this before uh this guy by the name of gene hunt who works at the smithsonian and like if you saw a picture of him kind of like austin powers does to. Fred Savage in Austin Powers where he's the mole and he's got that huge mole, and Austin Powers is just keeps like Tourette's like saying, Mole, moly, moly, moly." I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. You would if you saw a picture of Gene Hunt, you'd be like, nerd, 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 nerd. Anyway. Um and uh <laughs> And this comes was, from someone who's used to looking at Gould all day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh yeah, that's that that's a good point gene Hunt was he he applied the akieke way uh sorry ake method, let's just say to the idea that okay, well, we've got different kinds of change in models we might expect, and these were very simple numerical models and simulations that he would produce and then compare it to various data sets and he had tons and tons and tons of data of traits through time geological record time so through the strata as they are collected and you know he then had he had a, a gradualist or directional trend and then he had this static one and then he had something kind of in between which uh, is considered a, a – you called it an unbiased random walk, and the directional one you could call a biased random walk. And the way that the data looks, if you plot it, you know, on a graph, it's, you know, zigzagging back and forth, but the directional one goes in a very particular direction. And the unbiased one kind of meanders around a little bit, and then more or less the stasis one kind of just – it never – it never goes in any particular you know direction the data itself it never leaves anything behind it just returns it goes back up and down up and down it it you know and if you were to take an average of the whole data set over the x-axis or something it'd just be a straight line that kind of thing anyway just go with me on that so he's got all these different models and so he uses this methodology of multi multiple working hypotheses in the verbal description and in the numerical one, he in particular uses or employs this Akiike information criterion methodology. And, you know, he was able to come up with some answers, you know, um, from this large, relatively large data set. And I don't, who knows if it totally ends up resolving the debate, but you know, uh, the unbiased random walk and stasis one out in these, you know, uh, for the vast majority of the data sets. And directionality, the thing that, say, Darwin would tell you is you should expect, but the geological record's too imperfect, so fuck it, you know. You know, that is not seen. Anyway, so then later, these other people came along and said, well, that's good study, I want to do that too. And, but then they started to look across, if they could of various traits belonging to the same lineages, if you will. And what they found when they did the same kind of study was that, yes, Gene's work was kind of correct, but if you look at one, like, lineage, you know, one trait's doing the stasis thing, one trait's going directional, one trait's going random walk, you know, so it's got, like, this mosaic. And they're like, yeah, mosaic evolution, that's not, like, a... You know, that's kind of an older idea, mosaic evolution. It's not something that's brand new. They didn't come up with a term or anything. The idea just being that there's various rates that traits evolve over time. So now they're using multiple working hypotheses on this kind of thing. It's getting even more complicated. And they're like, God damn it, you know. And then Gene's like, I'm joining you guys. And they all join together. And then they're like, well, what happens if we, like, uh, create even more models where we, like, have it do, like, some random walk at the beginning and then it does stasis or it does stasis and then does gradualism or whatever. And they just kept combining things and they had all these various different models. And they found that that was even also uh, fruitful in some ways Um, to at least, you know, expanding their, you know, view of, well, what are the various modes and tempos and evolution? Anyway, all that ended up doing was just giving them an even wider scope to see the changes of evolution through the geological rock record. And um, it just seemed to me like they were just super productive in essentially applying this idea that Chamberlain had in a very quantitative way to questions that at least in evolutionary biology and paleontology are really important. Are they going to, at some point, could this be some sort
0: of cyclical process where they do multiple working hypotheses and such a large number of them come out as partially productive, does that give you a new data set to make new, more refined hypotheses on and then run it again? And then you sort of winnow down by doing it five times until you reach the final induction. Or
1: (laughs) I know. I don't know when the final induction is supposed to happen, but I want that... Final induction thing you said, edit the shit out of. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't know. Because to me, I'm like, no, 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 final induction. Like, It's like we were watching. um, I have to bring it up. I'm sorry. But we watched that Brett Weinstein, Richard Dawkins debate. And in one point, you know, Brett Weinstein's like, ah, we haven't made any progress since your Selfish Gene book. And Dawkins is like, but what if we were right? Like, what if we did the final induction or whatever? ah so those are all red flags for me i'm just like no i don't know if we get it right you know uh enemy skepticism where i don't know you know like if i if we had it right we wouldn't know and so uh best not get too comfortable with that unless you're just like well i'm old and dying it, i don't care or whatever but yeah that that's my thinking is that well so far they haven't reached the final induction maybe they've just made a bigger mess but in my opinion it's a, I, I love the, that mess like <clears throat> it's not saying that it's uniform directionality still does not do much and i think that in particular there's a the one model in particular that seems to do quite well is this random walk stasis combo but it is interesting because then you can say, well, what's up with this random walk shit? That's not, that's not stasis. That's not directionality. Like, are, are we totally missing something? You know, and I think that to me seems like a fruitful area to start, you know, asking questions about.
0: Yeah, seems that way to me too.
1: I don't know that I have anything useful to contribute at this segment. Yeah, I mean, the final, final induction. Yeah, I like that example. I mean, that's, I kind of feel like I'm coming through the back door, though, because that's kind of... I remember do, reading those papers as a younger in than I am now. And then later coming across multiple working hypotheses, and only later finding the original paper, which is this thing we're talking about today.
0: Oh, would you call this one the original, or the coinage of that term, or the original paper?
1: I don't... I mean, I, to your I knowledge? would... Right now... You know, like I would say that. But I don't think it's a huge jump to go from like one of something to many of something, you know. So I think his whole contribution for sure at the least seems to be the parent-child metaphor. And that the idea being that if you have many children, then you won't fall in love with one or the other too much. Mm -hmm. So you would say that Science
0: 2018 primarily operates under... This method, the capital T, capital M, the method that Chamberlain's talking about.
1: (laughs) I would say, I don't know if it primarily does, because I think there's a lot of research done where it's like, there's a lot of times people like, for instance, like clinical trials, they might just be like, eh, you know, it only calls for us to have the, the active ingredient against the placebo. But at other times... They'll still have, you know, in a trial with various arms to the trial, which you could say would be the various hypotheses. You have a placebo, you could have the active ingredient, and then maybe, yeah, you're comparing it. You have these active comparators, as they're also called. Um, You could have multiple of those, perhaps, and say, yeah, our new drug outperforms everything, or whatever. You want it to say that anyway. That's, I think, tends to be more ideal. Yeah um, but that that was the word. You said primary and I thought, well, ideally, I think that's, you know, a way to go. We should figure out if that's the method we want to use and the only the only a good way to find that out would be to do it a lot, you know, <laughs> to explore it as much as possible to see if there's, you know, anything maybe wrong with it. Well, what do we compare it to? Right?
0: How do we know if it's working? Like, we do that method a bunch of times. And then, uh, well, how do you know if it has been successful or not? Because there's no true method to compare it to. Or, what about that tongue-in-cheek point of, uh, all right, well, you're saying the method of multiple working hypotheses is the way to go. Well, that seems like a unitary method. Maybe we should have multiple methods and multiple working hypotheses is one. And then we run it against ruling theory and we run it against all these other ones. But then at the end of the day, how does anyone determine which one won? Because nobody's got the truth or which one's the
1: truth. Well, they're all nested, unfortunately. So to me, it's just if you were to have multiple methods or something like that, then I don't, I would think that it would just be this lineage of methods against another lineage you know
0: but okay you, you had just in
1: either case tongue in cheek that's what the philosophers are for <laughs> well,
0: i'm glad we're good for
1: something <laughs> well i mean scientists are doing the stuff you guys are like what if you want?" gonna wear like, fucking jesus christ you figure it out then don't ask me Come back and tell me I'm wrong. I
0: got multiple hypotheses
1: to test. <laughs> exactly. I have fun to do. You guys are like, I sent you that tweet where like the philosopher tries to describe a chair, and it's the character from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, where he's got all the shit he's got on the board, and he's trying to, he's going crazy. Anyway,
0: talk to me That's more. You. You're just like, well, in there's
1: the-. more methods. <laughs>
0: let's go back to the null hypothesis okay because when I asked do you think that science 2018 typically operates under the method of multiple working hypotheses you said kind of no but then you mentioned medical trials and placebos etc is a placebo an example of a null hypothesis yeah kind of and if you have even two whatever yours is and the null, A null, whatever. That is more than one. That's multiple, right?
1: I guess. I mean, but it's just that it didn't happen. Now, the placebo is definitely a method because you're just like, here, take this sugar pill, right? So that's a I would say that falls into the method. But like when if you have just one data set and you just have your hypothesis that or not data set, but you have, you know, a couple of data sets and you're like, you know, their averages are not the same or whatever then the null is just that they are or whatever, you know what i mean like well can you give your definition of a null hypothesis the null is just that it's it's the you know kind of the antithesis of the the thesis you know it's it, it's just that it isn't it's a negation of whatever it is that your statement is about so it's not an independent like you know Uh, I think it's directionality. I think it's stasis. I think it's, you know, an unbiased random walk. You know, these are all distinct in their own way, and they have their own parameters, and they have their own, you know, they're a model, you know, with various, you know, functionalities to them, whereas null is just a nothing. It's just like yeah you know, like there's no real parameter. Um, There's no active ingredients uh, that are in there so it's just a it it is not you know or whatever the way you just, just way described
0: it made me think that there is no like capital n master null hypothesis that everyone always uses but rather no. that each instance of hypothesizing has its own unique null which is determined by the hypothesis itself that you're working with yeah and then the null is just putting a negation sign in front of it
1: Basically, not A, you know?
0: So if we just run real quick through a toy example of one of these maybe developmental psychology experiments where we're seeing if a kid has object permanence or whatever and you got your little baby and you have a box and a ball and you open the box and you put the ball in the box and you close it and then you... So we're going to tell our story about what that kid is hypothesizing, right? And one might be... The ball is in the box. What's the null mm-hmm. of that? Ball's ball is not in the box. Is it there is no ball? There is no box? No. Well, I mean what the ball where is it then? I don't know. It doesn't matter. So yeah, okay. Then I that's what I thought I guess you were saying. It's as simple <laughs> yeah. as you just say not in your hypothesis.
1: Yeah, a not a.
0: So then when we're doing multiple working, do we do multiple nulls then and we just, as standard practice, we nullify no. everything?
1: We We compare the models against each other. And so the downside is that, well, you know, there's kind of an indefinite number of models one could have out there. And so you don't know if the seven you grabbed are the ones that'll do it. What the like a a, a Akiki information criterion will give you is like a hey yeah this one fits best. That doesn't mean it is the thing. It just says like well it's out of the seven, this one works best on this data, you know, whatever. And so that's all it also is trying to say. That's what I'll say for right now.
0: All right. (laughs) So (laughs) do you have uh, another thing on any list of where you want to go next with? The method
1: no I, I i'm i think that should be I, anymore i'll like give myself more rope to hang myself with i do have some issues but nothing to nothing no proponent type things to say about it i now have one thing more or less that i have in question about the method but i think i've talked enough so we i can get back to it later or maybe you'll bring something up that'll make me go, yeah, me too, or whatever about it. One issue that you
0: and I have argued about, I think, could call it before, is what the aim of science is, or what, how we could characterize it. At various points in the Chamberlain article, he seems to speak as though capital T truth is... The aim of science.
2: Mm. A dominant disposition to find out what is should precede and crowd aside the question commendable at a later state how came this so? First, full facts, then interpretations. Yeah. What is
1: the aim of science, Ryan? You you say that because you know that bugs the shit out of me. I'm like,
2: I can't speak for science. Uh,
1: you know, you wanna know, know what I wanna say? The aim of science is, and then I'll try and take an actual stab at it. Mm-hmm. The aim of science is to have fun. Oh my god! I know. All right. Well, well that's so interesting.
0: St- I wouldn't expect that to be the answer. Why do you
1: say that? Because it's. There's a the joy of playing with ideas and figuring things out. I—that's I, sort of one of the Richard Feynman approaches, I guess. But I—the I, only reason why I love science, and I would kind of think that anyone else kind of loves science, is because it's—it's it's fun to have tools that do things. You—you know—that help you not be at mercy of existence or whatever you know what i mean like there's this it's it's a fun because there's at first a new feeling of control but then right away there's a feeling of screwing around and you know making up a game and seeing where it goes you know and uh you there's a lot of like unknown territory Things that you're not quite sure. It just automatically opens up all this unknownness. And with the tools, you know, it's, it's a lot easier going into the dark cave with a torch than it is going in without one, you know? And so that's the kind of feeling like, oh, well, we could just, you know, I want to know what's in that dark cave. I don't know why, but I do. But it makes me, you know, feel a lot more comfortable when I've got this bright light. You know that allows me to see what I'm you know walking through rather than you know stumbling about in the dark and not knowing what horrible thing awaits you so science has that it and and I know that's like, well, how's that fun to me it's it's I just gave it a bad negative feel, but it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel like you're in a dark cave and it's awful or whatever you just you now can screw around and at least for me that was the feeling when i started doing more science um before when you're in high school or whatever they're just like memorize this shit and shut up you know like and you're just like ah, like but it, they're like that about everything you know and so school in general is kind of not fun in that way but then you get into college and You know, they start expecting you to do stuff and manipulate, you know, you know, change that parameter and see what happens and change that one. And and you're like, Oh, cool. You know? And all of a sudden it's things are fun again, because it's like, you're in a sandbox you're like, well, I made this little stream and it goes to the castle. What if I stop that there and I make a pond or you know, whatever, you know, like, what is, what does it look like? It's kind of cool to just see it happen. You know, to me, there's a, that's a big component. I don't know if it's that way for everybody, but I, you know, we go back to try and enjoy episode you know, three. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Um, you know, the truth seekers, you know, they, it's like they get to the control thing and then they're just like going to use it to like make them feel stable or something. And that's all they need out of it. You know, truth, you know, and, uh, For me, there's it's the game playing that's the fun thing. So for other people it might be something else. The aim of science might be to find the truth. Truth seekers.
0: So part of your answer is it depends on who you're talking to. You don't think there is any single aim of science. There it would might be better to talk about the aims of individual scientists. And for you, yeah, an important part of it is Hedonistic pleasure, or it's just literally fun. It's not, and but when you went through fleshing that out a little and describing more detail what you meant, I heard some other things that would be probably candidates that some other scientists might say, and one would be domination, right, of nature technologically. Yeah, that it allows the scientific practice allows us to make torches, which then allow us to pursue our projects in a more pleasing way. So you've got the aesthetics and you've got the dominance and the exerting of our will better, getting, uh, imposing our values upon the rest of nature, some kind of pragmatic success type thing that we were looking for what works rather than just what's true And then what works is determined by whatever our current concerns are. If I want to spelunk and do so slightly more safely and minimize the chances of coming nose-to-nose with grizzly bear, maybe I should (laughs) walk behind a flame that's extended out from my body a reasonable distance, blah, blah, blah. One thing that you once thought and I don't, it's been a while, so I don't know if you still do. As I recall, you would claim to me, even if one philosophically agrees with a skeptical position, that somehow, ultimately, truth is inaccessible to human beings, is not warranted to claim, etc., It's still a uh, good cheese at the end of the maze for a scientist. it's a lure. it's a they will do their jobs better if they think they can get the truth. Does this ring any bells?
1: yeah uh it does um, I mean it's colored by me now what i but definitely i I think that, yeah. Do you want to continue? No, I want... Or do you want me to Yeah, elaborate? give
0: me your version of that or your current position or...
1: <laughs> My current position is that, you know, the truth or what works or even just it's fun, Um. you know, to play games and the joy of that, <clears throat> any of those, you need one of those. or other to for a scientist they are they should continue on um as if what they're going to do will discover truth will work will be fun and interesting because sometimes uh it doesn't work sometimes it isn't all that interesting uh and probably all the time. <laughs> you never find the truth. And that's the whole thing about science is that there's a shit ton of failure. So you need that drive. You need that kind of like, yeah, I'm going to get up tomorrow, you know, this morning I'm going to get to it, you know. If you didn't have the hope and the promise of at least at least those three things, one of them or whatever if you lean one way or the other, then it might be less enticing, I guess. What were the three again? But oh, uh, I don't know. Uh, fun, work, and truth. <laughs> Does is it is it interesting? Does it work? Did you find the truth? You know, like <clears throat> you know, those are kind of three options. Some might go in the direction. They might you know be more compelling one or the other to an individual scientist or you know. And so. Yeah. So
0: are you saying you no longer, if you ever did, you don't. You're not on board with the claim scientists will do a better job if they are truth seekers. But you're saying we do want to give them a motivation. It's just that you now would allow for other options. It could be mere fun. It could be some version of progress or it could be ultimate truth.
1: Yeah, I, I I would say that. Um, I'll I'll agree to that provisionally, <laughs> um, at this point.
0: Okay, it, it, for those who have listened to previous episodes, they may re- recall that I'm a bit hostile to the notion of truth. <laughs> but so you know, just to put that for convenience at hand in this episode. I'm not a truther, but I did like that, there are things I liked about the claim, maybe it's a noble lie to tell scientists that their job is discovering the truth, because maybe they'll do a better job at what they're doing. And and I, as I interpreted Chamberlain in 1890, that seems to be almost, not only did he have that as his aim of science, my interpretation from reading it is that that wasn't really even a question. That, of course, not only do I think this, this is what we all think. Is it not obvious that we uh, want to attain ultimate truth? So then I had the thought or the wonder, if there's anything to this noble lie version might it be more like a stepping stone like something that humanity in its intellectual evolution needed at some point and then later became transcendable like well yeah sure from 1890 to 1925 we had this truth thing but then we got off of that now we do something else or might it be sort of a pendulum At any given era, it might be more or less emphasizing epistemic absolutes like truth or be more what we might now call postmodern or something where we don't emphasize truth very much, but then as our cultures develop, it might become useful again in this context to use the truth idea. Or might it just be a total red herring mistake that we, you know, uh, whether we do the meme thing and say that, well, truth is a successful meme and it replicates and doesn't help us out at all, but it is a good replicator and, you know, we'd be better off if we had never invented <laughs> the concept. I don't know if you ever thought on any of those choices or an additional one
1: i don't know i i don't know i i I get weirded out by these sort of strong positions that are out there these as like camps you gotta either join you know like some kind of team um i i i wouldn't feel comfortable i mean i I feel confident that no one would say that we were truthers or whatever. So what do we know and believe about science or whatever? So we must then by default be these postmodern people or something. Uh, Trying to take science down a notch or whatever. And if one was to listen to the whole catalog, they'd, I think, giving it a fair assessment of all the episodes in this Doddler's podcast, uh would recognize that if anything, we might put it up on too high a pedestal. I don't you know what I mean? Like, uh for some people that may not be possible, but um you know, that we have not included enough real like humanities or whatever in art that we may actually poo poo it, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh and a lot of the things that kind of p- perhaps Perchance fall into postmodern uh, or, or 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 darkened by the shadow of postmodernism or whatever um, I don't know if the Gender stuff today is or isn't or whatever I, I, I just get weirded out by the whole drawing of lines in the sand And I'm just like We're, you know, we're two friends who care about this stuff Well Brock we're practically brothers at this point
0: Aww You never know what's going to come out of a podcast.
1: (laughs) But, you know, like we like talking about this stuff, you know, and I feel the heat of the flames of persecution. What? This is. We talk about these things sometimes. I'm just like, Jesus Christ, you know, like. I wasn't asking you to paint,
0: to tattoo on the colors of postmodernism or something. I, I like really that word that. came out and Brian is all just like, <laughs> I don't want it. <clears throat> I was trying uh. in that little piece paragraph to step back from even taking a position on uh, whatever they call it, an alethic or a semantic position about truth itself and whether we can or can't get it and just meta up a step and say, Ethologically, these chimps out there that are playing these games, that have these projects and concerns, and are doing this thing that they call science, do they do better or worse if they use the vocabulary of truth? And do they talk to each other that way? Is that what they write in their private diaries at night? Oh, Martha, I got closer to the truth today. <laughs> yeah, We don't need to necessarily take a position on that but just notice what the chimps are doing and then see if it works and then these options of it's a total red herring it's a useful stepping stone it's a pendulum of back and forth that when we play the truth
1: game how it how well it works yeah i i would say it's great for motivation right um but it's also a disaster when it comes to like your feelings of failure, if you're talking about truth, right? Because then you live in this world where you're, you know, where your efforts have been pointless and you know what I mean? Like, and I think when we emphasize truth too much, we might feel too afraid to acknowledge the failures and what we can learn from them maybe. Um, And that that in and of itself, is a valuable research as well. You know, why did this fail? And why does this not work? You know, you glean things from that. But if you're just like, truth, you know, and your model doesn't work, I don't know. I mean, I think it'd be good motivator for sure. And it might be a quite potent one. I also wonder if truth is kind of behind the sort of ruling theory component. Because we're talking about jimpiness and stuff like that. And uh, truth is like a, you know, holy grail of sorts, you know, like, and if you were the one who found it, well, then after the selfish gene, evolutionary research just stopped, you know, because you found it. Congratulations, you know, now let's build monuments and, I don't know, know, that's kind of the thing that I... I, I worry about with this whole truth thing as well, maybe. <clears throat> um, and so, I don't know. Maybe it isn't a healthy thing. Maybe there's some unhealthy aspects that one would not want to have as a heavy motivator in scientific research that bias it in a bad way, you know. But I don't know. I, you have to, Hopefully... <laughs> These scientists are open to experience or whatever. But as Chamberlain says, they're all a bunch of imitators. So I don't know. There's only a few originals, you know?
0: Yeah, it's lonely out here.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> what do you think? I guess I set you up for that. When he says, first full facts, then interpretations. Can you get a fact I, without an interpretation?
1: <laughs> um trying to think of something really simple so I can you know analyze it quickly. I'm looking off in the middle distance as you as you love when people do, you know. Yeah, right like find um, something <laughs>
0: less arcane than what formed the Great Lakes.
1: yeah well yeah isn't that a bad thing isn't that the the problem with induction isn't that what it's about that you can't just like well measure everything without having something that the measurements are in service of like it'd be like Look at that tiny bacterium without a microscope. You know, like, how do you get there without optics?
0: What do people th- think fact means? Or what do scientists? Or what is Chamberlain?
1: Ah, uh, I mean, just uh, shooting from the gut or whatever for 2018 science or whatever. And me, RTP McKenna data (laughs) measurement you know i think that's what people think you know the earth is so many miles from the sun fact so a
0: linguistically encoded result of a measurement (laughs) jesus christ say
1: it say it
0: an encoded measurement
1: say it for the scientists in
0: the room Encoded measurement. Is that what you're saying? Um, I'm. I'm. I, I was just saying measurement. And then I. Well, it's not a fact yet. Like, what is a measurement? Holding a ruler up next to an inchworm, right? I've taken the measurement, but I don't think we have established a fact yet. When all I've done is hold up
1: the device next to the target. Well, the measure, yeah, the me, a fact is some kind of measurement in context of some kind. I mean, it can be a measurement in context, in some kind. So you
0: don't think, or you don't like the part where I'm stressing that it has to be encoded into some sort of language.
1: Um. No, I, I guess. Um. I just, it's batteries included that, and that may be a fault of mine when I think about that, because it's like, all right, you know, you're, you're coming up on the language. Okay, you've got the, all right, you're through the language, kind of like an airplane flying through the cloud level. You're like, okay, now we're at 35,000 feet. You don't describe, you know, like above the cloud level, you know, like you just say, well, here we are uh 35,000 feet or whatever above the ground but you know what i mean like it's just sort of like a i i that was a, maybe a bad analogy but i was just saying like this linguistic encoding thing it's like it seems like it's a it's a given that we're ta- you know we having to use some language to communicate any kind of quote unquote fact what well. <clears throat> But if you phrase it that way, that we
0: use language to communicate... <coughs> ah, ah, We're fighting through it, folks! If you use language to communicate a fact, then you seem to be saying that the fact itself is extra-linguistic and prior to any given codification. And that I no, want to push I'm
1: back on, that- I guess... Pushing back against those straw, man. No, I was just saying that, like, any of this fact talk is within the realm of the language. I hinted, I it got circular when I said talk. But, you know, any kind of, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe I, I just never really thought about it. I don't think about it in those ways. You do. You th- You're like, let's insert language in here. And I'm like, God damn it. Get the fuck out of here. We're just measuring this worm. And you're like, where's the language encoding? And I'm like, God, Jesus, fuck three inches. Oh, there's the language. Right, There's All right. right. And that's when it becomes a fact I would be proposing. Ah, so you're saying it precipitates out into language, whatever the activity was. And that, because that is the fact.
0: The fact is, quote,
2: This worm is three inches.
0: Unquote. It's a reporting in English and arithmetic or whatever, in numerals and plus English, the result That's of cool. a measurement.
1: So a fact is a linguistic token uh-huh. or something of an event.
0: I guess so. I mean, I... <laughs> prefer my way of saying I mean, it but i think and linguistic we're, encoding we're coming closer together why
1: does it have to encode you computer piece of shit <laughs> uh, you love your computers and your linguistics and i'm talking about worms well yeah
0: but you're talking i'm not totally getting your position because then <clears throat> i thought you were stressing well we don't need to mention the the language part because that's tacit it's just assumed like of course it's a linguist but now you're saying
1: get it That's out of here thinking. no i'm just saying you know get it out of here <laughs> <laughs> no i'm not saying it 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 vacates i'm just saying like it you know we're in it or whatever i, I don't know i'm i'm open i mean it's just You asked, and I just decided I'd go with... I've been going with gut feelings a lot. Tim Allen would be proud. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But uh, another Great Lakes show, or whatever. Sort of. So even um, Chamberlain, in
0: 1890, seemed to notice the linguistic determinism stuff. We've talked about in many places, especially episode eight, um, when he
2: wrote, The method has, however, its disadvantages. No good thing is without its drawbacks And this very habit of mind, while an invaluable acquisition for purposes of investigation introduces difficulties in expression. It is obvious upon consideration that this method of thought is impossible of verbal expression we cannot put into words more than a single line of thought at the same time. And even in that, the order of expression must be conformed to the idiosyncrasies of language. And to me, that seems to be in tension
0: with this earlier claim about first full facts, then blah, blah, blah. Um, Mm. If you even while engaging in his method, still have to put it into words in an order of expression which itself must conform to the language. Uh, Where's this fact that came first?
1: Well, Well, he's a truther, right?
0: I think so. I mean, he sounds like it sometimes, but of course anyone... The whole general project seems to be in a thrust... Of a more game-playing, engineering-style orientation, doesn't it? Uh, I want to try to reduce bias, notice complexity, have multiple choice. Those aren't very truthy-sounding
1: things. And it's a review, so... He's also a bit of an overseer, blowing a whistle.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, he tweets... Right, and, and anyone who's doing historicism is kind of overseeing
1: it's like he's he's giving lip service to truth at times maybe i don't know he's kind of he's he's all over the place you know it's uh he's he's breaking new ground i don't know you know it's uh it's complicated he you need multiple working hypotheses to figure him out
0: (laughs) and then there's whenever reading these old-timey papers and not being, and being somewhat ignorant about the fullness of the context. It's hard to know when people are adding in concessions to what they know to be popular positions but not really taking them. And my prime example of that, I think, is if you read Francis Bacon and the way that he talks about God. At the time he was writing you know the christianity was extremely uh hegemonic you know they were in charge and so he had to say all these little asides about oh but of course that's what god would want it to be and all but it seems obvious <laughs> yeah. reading back now to some of us that he was actually being a bit of a polemicist and just satirizing and poking and uh teasing these guys and that he didn't really buy it and i wonder if perhaps some of that is what chamberlain is doing at various points that maybe when he talks about these that there's some way to access pure fact that that's just a habit of speech at the time or that he's catering to some faction
1: i don't have the um the sources or anything the authors of these Points, but i think that was something that darwin was doing an awful lot of um for instance i think somebody some young up-and-coming science scientist science person whatever was asking him for advice and one of the things he told him was to always do like you know everything should be induction because that was you know the view of the day even though darwin himself was you know deducing and hypothesizing all over the place you know he was you know he created it as if he had you know he he created the picture as if he just went out and gathered a bunch of facts and then generalized about them you know um when really he was just throwing shit against the wall a lot he was like oh what if it's this what if it's this you know like you know and but the advice he gave to young scholars or whatever was you know, just collect the facts and blah, 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 because at the time that was what it was. So he was up against that inductive bacon kind of quality of research and value and all that. And then also he was up against the religious stuff. Um, Although he never obviously made mention of God. I don't think he could. Uh, That was one area that he was not exempt from. Or couldn't hide himself, and then there was a lot of stuff on Galileo, that he tried to cover up things as well, that he, you know, he he like mul- he wrote like multiple versions mm-hmm. of, in letters or something like, you know, just like, so these, yeah, maybe these people are pretty smart. They're rare for their time, just like I suppose you you yourself is rare in these times, and you know, then they, you know. Try and uh, work out the details without being seen by the idiocracy.
0: We're doing pretty good at that, I think. We're not being seen by anybody.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, catch us if you can. (laughs) You've touched upon linguistic determinism or whatever it is. Talked about language. Do you have any more on language? No, I got
0: another. I'm moving on to another issue that came up in
2: this uh, charming little paper. There is another and closely allied danger in the application of the method. In its highest development, it presumes a mind supremely sensitive to every grain of evidence. Like a pair of delicately poised scales, every added particle on the one side or the other produces its effect in oscillation. But such a pair of scales may be altogether too sensitive to be of practical value in the rough affairs of life. And when I read that
0: part, I hear in it what we now call the problem of theory change. Right? How can we decide, to go back to Kuhn, I think when the anomalous data is sufficient to pressure us out of any given theory versus saying, well, it was a mistake in, the, in this individual trial or whatever. Chamberlain is saying, when we're playing this game of multiple hypotheses, we're going to have a lot of close races, maybe. And that might it be the case that it's, that our tool is just too fine and that we run another trial and we get this piece of evidence and that puts a grain on this side of the scale in favor of this in favor of a and against b and it tips the scales and how do we ever decide when to get to the the final adoption versus just this one
1: versus (laughs) this one it's a little bit ahead but maybe we're going to do some more well okay so that definitely reminded me of like that whole i think it's something that psychologists study is like, you know, when you're provided too many options on Netflix, you just surf Netflix and you make no decision and you're just like, fuck it. You know, like it's too, you know, not any one of them is really winning out, you know, and that, you know, uh, you can't make a decision as to whether to watch, uh, <laughs> a fucking documentary about cats or a documentary about dogs. um, Right, and this is the you whole know, thing about so you go
0: I, in the cereal aisle and there's too many choices, uh-huh. so then whatever you buy, you're not happy with it. Was this the Daniel Gilbert or somebody wrote that book about the happiness yeah. problem or something?
1: Right, yeah. Somebody wrote, well, I'm sure multiple people have have commented. On, I see articles in like all of the heady magazines, online magazines that are out there that usually touch on this subject. I was just in the grocery store today and I was looking for something, but I remarked at how many. I was looking for, uh, there's this particular kind of soap that's not too irritable for the kids when we give them baths or whatever. But like, there's just so many kinds of soap. I'm like, what the fuck? Who cares? Like, really? You need this one over this one? It doesn't, ah, fuck it. You know, I just wanted to leave. You know, I didn't want to do, you know, so yeah, it's like there's too many slices you know or whatever it is it's like i need maybe seven options you know and in some ways you probably really there might only really kind of be seven options but they've just sliced it so fine in between the significant breaks between them and you can't tell when you see all the various details of how you know the soap that you would buy or whatever Uh, But at the same time, yeah, that was a negative. Did you have anything else to say? Sorry. Well, I know this thing that you're referencing
0: under the version that you do end up buying whatever you buy. You didn't go in knowing what you wanted, but you have the choices. You pick one, you go home, and then you regret it because since you had so many options, you're looking for and concentrating on whatever minor flaws there are in yours. You're like, well, surely there must have been a better one on the shelf. But if there was only seven... Sure. They'd be all so different that whatever you get, you'd know that that was the one that you picked and there's nothing close enough to even compare and blah, 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 But I don't know how that relates to the scales and the theory change. So
1: fill in that. Well, I was just saying that like it's kind of like the effect of you have all of these models and how will you be able to detect satisfactorily or whatever that one has more value than another. Um, if they're, if it's a close race, if you look at one soap versus another, and you're like, I don't know, they kind of have the same ingredients. You know, what win? What wins out? Price. You know, like, uh, is it the content that they're f- providing you? or is it some other more superficial thing like well i just like this model cuz that's the one i learned or whatever you know like you know what i mean like what ultimately is the final induction in terms of the the moment maybe not the final but just like the temporarily final induction you know what makes you say well this is the one mm-hmm. we're going with if say you were going to make a decision about well you know we have these various models we have this particular data set this these you know all for the most part the differences between how they fit the data or the data fits them or whatever um is not that significant uh this one has a little bit better uh value that comes out of it but i like this one more and the difference isn't enough for me to feel like well that my bias is that bad you know that's all i'm trying to say i don't know if that also is wrong with the idea of the theory of
0: I think I can make a bridge there that, for example, when you're making your grocery store decision, the grains on the scale would be things like, well, is this uh, one of those that says no parabens or whatever in it? Okay, well, that was one of my criteria that gets <laughs> yeah. the thing. All right, well, yeah, but the price right. is really high. Oh, that's going to go on the other side of the scale. And then you're like, oh, but yeah, it's exactly. got a really appealing packaging. That goes over here. and uh you have uh-huh. to weigh these things out and eventually at, at least in that example there are more important values like not getting yelled at for standing there for an hour you got other things to do and people to satisfy so that you're pushed into making your final decision in and i suppose the analog perhaps in the case of science would be well the end of the semester is coming and my dissertation's due i got to defend one of these and i I don't know
1: (laughs) something like that yeah um what was the key issue there yourself You, you you asked me
0: um something i was just bringing up the that that's a problem i don't know that i personally have arrived at any good answer to it other than that that's another argument for generalized skepticism that at any moment uh, it's kind of a pro-Kuhn anti-popper point I think Uh, when we talk is theory choice determined by falsification or by inference to the best explanation or something I mean and I hear the multiple working hypotheses probably goes well with the IBE stuff, right? That we come up with a bunch of different ones. But the falsification is a little bit oversimplified because any putatively false evidentiary result can be accommodated if you, in a Quinean way, shift around other nodes in your web of belief or in your theoretical framework. You can make those fit, and not change theories, and that there's Uh an indefinite number of different ways to deal with anomalies. And I prefer that method over the straight, proper falsification stuff.
1: Yeah, falsification seems like the null. And then the inference to the best explanation feels like the more multiple working hypothesis view. I think I do. <laughs> um, What other little nuggets did you want to talk? I have one. I could talk about some stuff for a little bit, and then you could get back to some of yours if you want, or we can continue with some of the things that you thought of. When you what you the got? Paper. What happens if your ruling theory happens to be a damn good one? You know, like what? How, you know, I think Chamberlain would say, well, you know, put it in the mix, you know? One of the things that I um, was part of for a number of years was a research group that um, was part of a large program that tried to come up with these things called uh, systematic reviews. Typically, it's something that happens in medicine or health research, but, you know, it's not solely just in in that realm. But you could kind of say that with the, you know, the um, meta-analyses that are done, um, that it's kind of a, it is definitely a kind of a, a multiple working hypothesis style as well, um, that it is essentially trying to say, well, amongst all these drugs, which ones are, you know, perform best. And when we do these kind of this higher level type statistics. um, And, you know, that goes into if, if one does, you know, if, if the results do seem really valuable or whatever, then they might put them, put it out there uh, in the form of like a pamphlet you'd have in your uh, waiting room. IBS and you, you know, but what, what if you don't do that? You know what if you don't have a bunch of ideas and what if you, you just have the one? I I by the way I'm I am exempting myself, even though I did episodic synchrony a couple episodes ago, I do have a multi, multiple working hypothesis framework, and so it, it's no coincidence that we end up talking about this. Um, I don't know if I'll get to my multiple working hypotheses, but it's. But there are some people who didn't have all alternatives and we adopt their ideas and i don't know if they were considered pet theories or not you know um it seems to me based on history that these people were pretty stubborn uh like really stubborn um and 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 it seems to me like the history of not just only science but many things are littered with these super stubborn people with their pet ideas and they're not going to budge. And it, you know, just happens to be that as we accumulate more and more evidence or whatever that, yeah, okay. Their idea does seem to be, you know, the best one. Um, So for example, uh, Jay Harlan Brent's or Brett's, Sorry, Um, I don't know why I said Brents, Um, David Brent. Anyway, um, he was a geologist who, I don't know how he came to study um, an area that you've driven through many a time. But he studied uh, eastern Washington in this area called the Scablands. And you should be pretty familiar with it. You've driven through it a number um and the features at the surface of the earth there are quite strange there are these long stretches but sort of somewhat narrow stretches of um basalt rock which is you know um kind of you know a dark burnt kind of looking color for those who've never really thought about looking at those kind of rocks it's sort of a uh, there's a lot of iron content so when it kind of is weathering it sort of gets a little rusty looking to an to a degree but it's also quite black and dark like an iron could be there's other elements in there as well and all basalt is is just like lava flowing out of you know like if you go to hawaii or whatever and it flows you know that's basalt. (laughs) anyway um There are these huge amounts of basalt flows that occurred um, that came out of rifts and fissures in the crust and poured out a ton of lava all throughout this area. If you drive through the Columbia River Gorge, that's what you see in the cliffs is just the basalt after basalt after basalt flow. And in the eastern Washington it is no different, but there's a different terrain. It's kind of more of a plateau and. You know, you have all this other material that is on top of it. Uh, some of it's old ancient soils, and some of it's also this stuff called Lerse. Really fine, um, really, really fine, almost, you know, like, like a clay, practically. Uh, uh, sediment that has been literally just, it's the ground powder of rock from the glaciers coming down. Anyway. Amidst this Palouse Lurse in this area, it's kind of rolly and there's lots of grasses and it's kind of sort of soft. You have these, what look like if you had scratched your hand and then it starts to heal, there's like these scabs. And that's why they call it the scab land because it's the basalt kind of protruding more or less out of this soft material. Studying all these various features in that area, the only conclusion... J. Harlan Bretz, who is another one of those Baconian inductionist types, which I just gather the facts and then I generalize from that. Well, what he generalized from that (coughs) exercise was that it was a giant flood. Absolutely massive flood came through and created all these features. At the time, the prevailing framework viewpoint that geologists had was still very much, number one, it was Lyellian, uh, after Charles Lyell, who was a great geologist, came up with this idea of uniformitarianism, that the changes that occur, we've talked about this a little bit with the mass extinction episode, that changes are very incremental, they're very steady, they're very slow, and, you know, there are no major catastrophes, that all of the features that you see on a landscape were formed by very small, like, you know, just stick like, your fingernails scratching at the sediment, you know, just little bit by little bit. Um, and uh, it was still quite present at the time that, you know, Jay Harlan Bretz was working on his, uh, you know, his geological studies of the the landscape in eastern Washington. So he had this idea, it was this great flood and it had to have come from cuz you know at this point as well based on people like TC Chamberlain their work on glaciology and and the ice sheets and stuff that you know yeah there was some major ice sheets because we have this palus lurs we we have identified this type of sediment to be associated with glaciers because we have glaciers we have this kind of sediment actively being produced in other places and you know we, we this is just a massive amount of it it indicates that there are some really big ice sheets and, you know, hey, ice sheets are made of ice. This water it melts. We also have this framework of glaciers and interglacial periods and all that kind of stuff. So, okay, big amount of water came from some glaciers somewhere. It doesn't matter. It, his whole thing was big flood. And everybody was like, you're an idiot. It's just uniformitarianism. And this guy stuck with it until eventually enough evidence accumulated but he had this thing and he was super stubborn and he was not like he never changed he just kept holding on uh like one of the brilliant things was that they finally got up in an airplane and started flying over this area and they saw these huge ripples like you would see like even just in shallow water at the beach or something you can see those ripple formations in some sand or something like that well they saw them at like a huge scale And it turns out that these were the Missoula floods. Harlan J. Harlan Bretts didn't have any mechanism that he described for where the flood water would have come from or how it would have come from. But now we have an idea that, you know, all the evidence seems to point towards um, Lake Missoula and that there was a dam, ice dam break, and that now we have like, maybe there was like 40-plus Kinds of these huge massive uh uh floods it, totally uh all of where i live underneath my feet right now is is sediment that is you know you know allegedly from these floods and i'm in the willamette valley um anyway turns out this guy and his i would say from all intents and purposes it, it doesn't seem like it was a working hypothesis it sounds to me like it was Kind of his child, you know, it was something he was willing to go up to bat for relentlessly. Another guy, Alfred Wegener, he had this whole idea that, you know, he looked at the map of Earth and was like, geez, I could connect South America and Africa, and maybe Africa kind of fits nicely into, you know, the, uh, the the you know gulf of mexico and then kind of the top part of it sort of fits kind of okay into north america if we put all these things together maybe there was one giant continent at one time that must mean that the, the the continents move you know and there's like this drift this continental drift and everybody's like you're an idiot and all that kind of stuff um and he stayed with it i mean he even was doing some kind of research in greenland he was so dogged and stubborn that he died. He froze to death in Iceland. And even at that time, it's still no, not enough evidence had accrued for people to say, yeah, sure. But why did he stick with it? I mean, he just kept hanging on to this idea. It seems like Darwin certainly was another person. I mean, later on, he was like, I never said it. natural selection's the only thing. But, you know, he had to say that. He had to say, I never said that, you know, like... So to me, it seems like there's at times the ruling theory is a good thing to kind of go tisk tisk to, but it also seems to me like some of these things are, you know, ruling theories aren't all bad, are they? I mean, sometimes stubbornness is a good thing, right? I suppose
0: um, if you really commit to your only child... And you keep supporting them no matter how many times they try to do stand-up comedy and they get heckled and booed off the stage, but you're like, nah, keep keep going. You could still sleep in my basement and do it again tomorrow. <laughs> and you're very supportive of your ruling theory, your one child. You might eventually be vindicated, whereas if you had... Multiple children, or if you'd given up easier, then that would not yet have been discovered. I suppose we'd probably say that someone later would have come up with it. Uh, But it also sounds like an all-eggs-in-one-basket strategy, and it's easy to see looking backward. Oh, yeah, Wigner, he had it. Boy, that is my inspiration, and now I'm going to really stick to my idea, and I'm going to be like him. But, of course, the other 10,000 people who uh, had similar attitudes to Wigner. About how many ever? Uh, there might be fewer.
1: A lot. Uh, probably a lot of people. Are lost to oh.
0: history because it turns out they didn't win the race. Or at least right now they didn't. Maybe in 2200 we will change our minds and select someone else and laugh at us in 2018 for being Wignerian. Who knows? Maybe. But, yeah, it's just a risk.
1: We still – it's a risk, yeah. And so that was the other thing I wanted to mention is this notion of gambling. Uh, Multiple working hypotheses. I mentioned this in the episodic synchrony thing. Uh, The similarities in, you know, uh, meta-population ecology and portfolio theory in, you know – business finance or whatever or stock market uh you know you've got all these assets this sounds and and they call that diversification or whatever this sounds like that like okay you got a whole bunch you know don't don't put all your eggs in one basket whereas then some might say no like you know the, the payoff the big payoff will come if you do that otherwise you're just sort of putting along you know you got your many things you're unwilling to take a risk it's it's more risky, it's more of a challenge and a risk to actually come up with some kind of creative thought about something and then they just stick with it. And maybe maybe it is that, you know, uh it was just a working hypothesis and and uh, you know, it just kept passing the test as far as these individuals were concerned, but otherwise, you know. I don't know. These are pretty big ideas, though. I mean, natural selection, plate tectonics. The Missoula floods are not as big of an idea, but they were a big deal with respect to the idea of uh, catastrophism. Can we have big, major changes um, uh, on Earth? And that was definitely something that, oddly enough, went against some, some of the ideas of Darwin, who in his big old book on origin of the species did talk about how, you know, the fossil record is, or the rock record is the only thing that could, you know, if it was correct, then it kind of invalidates his theory. He said, and therefore his whole thing was fitting the facts to his theory where he was like, well, the, the, the rock records terrible, you know, (laughs) he just, he went in that direction and yet he's lauded as a king among kings of idea makers. With natural selection. It's huge. As far as science is concerned, it's one of the big ones. I've even heard of it. And he... <laughs> yeah, so I'm just saying, like... what? It seems to me like... I'm not saying put all your eggs in one basket, but some people have, and it paid off like a motherfucker.
0: Sure. I'm just saying, you know, there's many, many more who also put their eggs in one basket and they got smashed.
1: Well, here's the question. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Or do you play it safe? And, and who, who are we doing this for? We're we doing this for truth. Or are we doing this for... You, you want something to work? Because uh, either it's, you know, necessity or irritation is the mother of invention or you are a goofball like me and you're like, yay. Oh, it's not interesting. I'm, I'm disappointed and depressed, you know, like what's the payoff, you know, and maybe there's varying degrees of, uh, uh, you know, suffering that can come if it's truth or whatever, then you might want to play it safe because, uh, you know, if you're wrong then your whole like worldview has to change or whatever and um and that could be quite psychologically traumatizing, I think. <clears throat> Whereas if you were like, Well, I never put a whole lot of my hopes and dreams in that one, you know, then you can just at the end of the day save face and grace and all that kind of crap and say, Well, I'm just trying to inch closer to truth.
0: But wouldn't the multiple I don't know, maybe working hypothesis version of Darwin, I mean, let's just characterize it uh, oversimplified, tell a fictional story that he was a single child parent or whatever he was this guy who was like, this is it I'm not going to look anywhere else uh, if he had used multiple, wouldn't he still have ended up with the same thing in the end but just had a broader shotgun approach to trying out different things, but still reach the same winner. Um, You were using the gambling metaphor. Let's say we've got someone who is placing bets on a um, biased roulette wheel or something, so that there is, because there's a fault in the mechanism, a greater likelihood of certain numbers coming up than others. The all-eggs-in-one-basket gambler would pick their number, go all in on it every time and never try any other betting patterns, right? Uh If they happen to hit the right one, they will have more money at the end of the day, right? But Uh it's very unlikely that they will pick the exact right number. If you have someone who is intelligently experimenting with different betting patterns, they too will eventually notice the bias because of the way they're varying their bets. They'll say, oh, well, when I put more on 22, 23, it's got to be 23, um, I seem to win more. <laughs> and then over time, they will put more and more. They'll Pretty soon, they'll be going all in on 23 every time also. So that they'll get the same result as Darwin in the end, but they got there through a super, an epistemically superior process and took less risk. Is this making
1: sense? Yeah, no, I I hear what you're saying, um, but is that what we want to do? Is to You know, I mean, because that seems like a gamble as well, that you would actually end up with it. Like, it all seems like a, well, if you have it, then great. But if you don't, then you're just sort of, either you don't have it at all, because you put all your eggs in one basket, or you kind of have nothing really either, because you have all these ideas that aren't the one. They they could both miss, yeah. That's, you know what I mean? Yeah, so there's a bit of a gamble but is my question is is it worth it you know um it depends on the kind of individual i think you might be are you somebody who's super cautious and you're like i don't know and so you, you know maybe multiple working hypotheses is for you but if you're somebody who just likes to kind of go for it and uh you do get the aesthetic pleasure out of ideas or whatever and maybe it doesn't doesn't work you know the problem is is you know obviously the psychological clinging or whatever and <clears throat> i might be missing it on that, but um the other thing I wanted to say while I still have the thought in my head, and we can elaborate on it in a bit or whatever um is could multiple working hypotheses be just a natural progression because of the based on the history, like some of these people that I've mentioned and other people as well that we've mentioned, you know there just wasn't as much communication uh and there wasn't the same kind of network and there were fewer people in science and so if you go back all the way to the goddamn greeks or whatever then ruling theories would probably well i mean you don't have i mean how many people do you have to say like no to you know to you or whatever yeah, where their conferences like there are now and you know ways that people go back and forth i mean there can be negatives to that as well where everyone all of a sudden leaves the conference with the same damn idea and because someone's influential or whatever and they don't want to be out of his or her good graces but like still i I, i wonder if there's like a sweet spot you know where you know too much communication is too much you know and you're too influenced and you're not sure what the hell's going on in your head but then too much isolation can also be too much in that you know you don't have any real challenges to your ways of thinking or whatever. It's like you want to have something kind of in between, I would think. You know, you want to be able to acquire new information, but at the same time, you don't want to be inundated where you don't, you're not quite sure how to come up with the, you know, how to sift through the information to come up with your own ideas necessarily. And you're not also sure whether or not you have any ideas or they're just ideas that were put into your head in the first place. You know what I mean? Like, there's some sort of, like, in-between spot. I don't know if multiple working hypotheses every single time gives you that, right? Um, or maybe some kind of more, um, you know, not as many hypotheses, just a few at a time or something. You know, I wonder if you can augment it. Like, multiple, like, many, but not too many, you know? Because... <laughs> like, you know who knows what the dynamics are, unless you want to study that. Right,
0: I'm just talking. Well, Sorry. I don't know exactly what your question in there was. One would be, how many do you want me to have, Chamberlain? Is two enough? Is it different every time? Whatever. And then you were saying, yeah, between what and what? We send this uh, sweet spot or middle.
1: Oh, between, yeah, like a sweet spot between having too many hypotheses that you're comparing versus, you know, being so, you know, isolated that you just have your little ruling Mm -hmm. theory or whatever about, you know what I mean? And you don't have anyone to bounce the ideas off of. You're just by yourself and, you know, all on your lonesome and that isolation isn't going to help either. Like, so there's some kind of, I wonder what the sweet spot is where you have more than one theory but you know like that's where i was saying like do you just do like 3 at a time and then um take the top 2 and add mm-hmm. a third one or something you know what i mean like and out of those because so, you know, there's just
0: keep... always an indefinite number of possibilities so then one way yeah. you could search for a sweet spot is to uh have some sort of constitutional value set type thing Well, all right, we're going to do parsimony is just one of the uh, bill of, it's on the, you know, on the Ten Commandments of Science. And so any, you don't ever have to have in your multiple choice any duplicated hypothesis, but A has ten elements and B has those same ten elements, but two more. Well, you can always forget that. And then you could put how many ever commandments you wanted in. And that can help you go from an indefinitely large number to a reasonable number.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, I just was thinking about it in those terms, I guess, and trying to figure out if, if there's anything there to be said or, or, or noticed. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I haven't. I mean, I'm just thinking about these things now. As
0: Science. Know. Finding the sweet spot. <laughs>
1: yeah, the sweet spot. <coughs> um, did you have? Yeah, Jesus. Did you have any other uh, little tidbits that you no, I don't, wanted
0: no. to? I hit upon? I got nothing.
1: Got? No, I don't have anything either. And as usual, I, I had to. As usual, I had to like piss like a racehorse. I'm getting old. <laughs> you're just finding Um, the sweet uh, spot (laughs) (laughs) we gotta go Uh, we gotta uh, get out of here Jesus yeah great yeah okay well anyway so this was uh, uh, Chamberlain's last stand and uh, took multiple stands (laughs) (sighs) thanks excellent 6.3 Let's make it six point seven, right? Tell your friends. Yeah, yeah. Hit su- subscribe to the like button. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome.